welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Lord, give us hope and excitement to continue. Lord, give us the ability to remain steadfast under trials that we may receive the crown of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a new book for us. Uh, we're starting the book of James, and we're going to do something unique, and this might freak you guys out, but we're going to read the entire book of James. It'll be in just a little bit, and um, the reason why it might freak some of you out is because you have no attention span anymore. Um, thanks to digital media, you look at your you know, video clips to decide whether you're going to watch it. If it's more than it's like maybe three minutes, 57 seconds, you're like, I don't have time for that. So we're going to have a long reading of James, and I just ask you to make sure you find the book of James before we do this. We want you to follow along with us when we read through the whole book of James. As we start the book of James, the first verse is this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. First question we might have is, who is this James? He doesn't tell us. Whoever he is, he's well known enough to just go by his first name. Are there some celebrities like that? They can just go by their first name? Name a few. Cher? Who else? Sting. Is that his real name, though? Bono? Not probably also. We know that's not his real name. Uh, Prince? Not the real name. Uh, Ellen? I think that's her real name. We got a few of those. People that have a, can go by their first name. You put their first name out, they, you know exactly who they are. This James was that kind of a person. He could just say, this is James. Which James? The James, right? And people knew who he was. There's a couple of choices on who it could be. One of them is James, the son of Alphaeus. He was one of the 12. Probably not him, though. He was very little influence that we know of in church history. We don't know a lot about his life. Another option would be James, the son of Zebedee, much more well-known. He's the brother of the apostle John. But he got killed really early on. We see that he got killed in Acts 12. He was beheaded by King Agrippa. And so probably unlikely that he wrote this one. Uh, our next option is James, the son of Joseph and Mary, Jesus' brother. And he's actually, there you go, bingo, we won. Um, James had a massive influence, guys, in the early church. A lot of times we don't think about his influence, but at times he had as much or more influence than Paul or Peter. You, know, you think like, really? Yes, and I'll, sh- I'll prove that to you. James was um, Jesus' younger brother. He was um, a son of Mary. They were both sons of Mary. Of course, he's Jesus' half-brother, right? Because Jesus was virgin-born. He's the son of Mary and son of God, not son of Joseph. Um, James was the physical son of Mary and Joseph. And we know from Scripture that they had at least, after Jesus, they had at least six other kids. And we know that from Mark uh, 6.3, where some people say, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And um, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, whose sisters are with us here. Um, So there were actually at least four brothers that Jesus had that were born after him. And then there were at least two sisters. We know plural. So that's six plus Jesus, seven kids in that house. Um, We know that James and the other brothers didn't believe in Jesus um, in the beginning. We know that from uh, John 5, uh, 7, 5, where it says, Not even his brothers believed. Not only did his siblings not believe in him, they thought he was crazy, which is what you do usually when, you know, your brother goes off and kind of has this messianic ministry all over and people are coming to him and people are worshiping him and things like that. Mark 3, 21, it says that when the family heard, they tried to seize Jesus for they said he's out of his mind, okay? And so not only did the brothers, including James, not believe, but they thought Jesus was crazy. 
Um, Jesus' brother's unbelief appears to have continued all the way up to the cross. We know that because in John 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, one of the things he does is make sure that his mother will be taken care of, and he hands the care of his mother off to John the Apostle, which is strange if his brothers are still living, but they were not believers. And so he was handing off his mother to uh, the believing man John, his disciple, instead of his brother's. So what changed his mind? What made James, Jesus' younger brother, actually come to believe that his older brother was, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? And the thing that changed his mind was the resurrection. We know in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that he appeared to James and the other apostles. And so from the time of the resurrection, his appearance, Jesus' appearance to James, to Pentecost, we know he radically got altered. Because at Pentecost, we know in Acts 1.14 that all the brothers of Jesus were there waiting for the Spirit to fall in Jerusalem fully on board. So you got a 40-day period, right, of between uh, the resurrection and the ascension. Then you got another 10 days to Pentecost. And during that time period, these brothers are all in. They had seen Jesus risen from the dead. James quickly became a leader in the church. Um, when persecution broke out in Acts 7, when Stephen was killed, many of the new Jewish Christians fled Jerusalem. James stayed. He led the church of what was remaining there, the, the believers that were still there. Three years after uh, Paul got saved, he, it says in Galatians 1 that he went up to Jerusalem. He met with James. James was referred to as an apostle at that point. Uh, he wasn't one of the 12, but he was from some of the others that were called apostles, Paul being an apostle, James being an apostle. They had that apostolic authority, that authority that they had seen the risen Jesus and were authoritative teachers in the church. By Galatians 2, Paul says that James had become one of the three pillars of the church, meaning James and Peter and, and John. And you guys remember the incident in, in Galatians 2? In Antioch, Peter was in Antioch, and he was... He was doing missions work with Gentiles, with non-Jews. They were coming to faith. He was eating with them. He was having table fellowship with them, which is something Jews wouldn't have done before uh, Jesus. And he's having a great time fellowshipping with Gentile believers. And then some guys come down from Jerusalem. Some leaders, some teachers come down from Jerusalem. Peter then gets worried. He's worried about what these teachers from Jerusalem will think. And so he stops eating with Gentiles. And then Paul shows up, and what happens? Paul rebukes him, right? And says, what are you doing? You're actually denying the gospel with your behavior. You know, you should be welcoming these, these uh, Gentile believers and eating with them. And, you know, you're doing this just out of fear of these teachers coming up from Jerusalem. All of a sudden, you're compromising the gospel. Well, you got to ask yourself, what was so intimidating about those teachers from Jerusalem that Peter would back away from table fellowship with the Gentiles? And the thing that was so intimidating about these people is it said they came down from James. Now, I believe that they were actually distorting the teaching of James, but just the fact that guys coming down from Jerusalem that had, were using, at least name-dropping James, scared Peter. So you can see the immense power that James had in the early church. In, in Acts 15, the apostles and elders gathered together in Jerusalem to decide what parts of the law really apply to, to Gentile converts. They call it the Jerusalem Council. And what's really interesting when you read it is Paul talks, Barnabas talks, Peter talks, and then James talks, and he says, this is my judgment, and they write it up, and they send it out to the churches. And so James has a tremendous amount of influence, a tremendous amount of power in the early church, um, far more than we would have thought. And why, why don't we hear this much anymore? Well, that particular church, that um, Jewish Jerusalem church, kind of faded out of existence over time, and, and, and the memory of his power, unless you go back and dig into Acts, also faded. 
when Paul makes his journey back to Jerusalem at the very, right before he gets arrested, this is 10 years after the Jerusalem Council, he comes back to Jerusalem, and who does he report to all that he's done on his missions trip? He reports it to James. And James actually asks him to, you know, go in the temple and show that he's pro-Jewish customs, that he's not an enemy of the Jewish people, and Paul submits to that, once again showing the immense power that James has. So James's power in, in the early church was massive, and that's why when he writes the book of James, he can just say, James. You're like, which James? The James, right? This is from the James. And guys, the book of James, we're going to read it in just a little bit, is such a beautiful, bold book. I mean, it's such a beautiful, bold book. Um, if, if you're a, a student of Greek, you'll know that the Greek in it is exceptionally high quality. This book is wonderful for memorizing. If you've never memorized whole chapters or whole books of the Bible, this will be the time. Do it with the book of James. It's very memorable. It's very well crafted. It's got wonderful illustrations. That's one of the reasons people love James. When I talk to people and I say, hey, we're doing James. Universal reaction is like, oh good, that's great. I love James. It's one of the most beloved books. It has beautiful illustrations. It has wave-tossed doubters and scorching winds and the embryology of sin and it's got people looking in mirrors and horses bridled and flashy rich men and sailing ships and forest fires and deadly poison and bitter springs and figs and olives and grapes and people vanishing like mist and moths and rust and slaughter and farms. Yeah, and that's only some of them. That's in five chapters. It's amazing the beauty of illustrations. And, and even though this book, guys, is written in a very polished, nice Greek format, it is very, very Jewish. And as you read it, you'll feel the Jewishness of this. Because this was written, just as it says, to very early Jewish churches. These are um, Jewish people that had come to faith in Jesus. They're even sometimes referring to their gathering as a synagogue. That's how you see that in James, which is, shows how, how uh, Jewish this really is. This is probably in the mid-40s or something like that. It's very early. It's one of the earliest New Testament documents that we have. And so it's a little window into that, those early Jewish believers. It's super great. And the more you look into it, you'll feel that Jewishness. It sounds like wisdom literature. Sometimes people compare it to the Proverbs. When you think wisdom literature, though, don't think a book of advice. James has not come to give us advice. James is, he comes with thundering commands. He sounds way more like a mixture of the Proverbs with the prophets, right? He comes with an authority and a power that is unmistakable. This isn't just like, hey, your life would go better if you do this. It's like, you need to do this, right? It's the power and the authority. And it sounds just like who? It sounds just like Jesus, and it's amazing if you dig into this book and read Matthew along with it, you'll be amazed at how much this book sounds just like Jesus' teaching. It doesn't really have any uh, quotations, maybe one, but in that it's not quoted, but Jesus' teaching has been so like brought into his DNA that when he speaks, it's Jesus' teaching in his own words. It's amazing. In fact, uh, a fun assignment would be to read it along with the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing how much of the content of this book and tone and all that is the Sermon on the Mount. And if you guys get on our email list, I'll email you a little chart that shows you where in the Sermon on the Mount all these different topics are dealt with. But it's, it's striking. I was studying this book of James for the last couple of weeks, and I was struck with how the themes in the book of James fit so well with the themes of James's life. just want to throw a few of those out. Like the theme of care for the poor and widows. We know that, Jesus, that James um, was born in the same house as Jesus, and we know that their dad, Joseph, died, right? He, he died. Now, that's 
James's physical dad, but Jesus's stepdad, right? Because Jesus' dad being God the Father. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. But uh, it's most likely that, that their father Joseph died while James was young, leaving his mom Mary as a widow and leaving them in severe financial distress. Remember, at least seven kids. No breadwinner. Okay? And then you think about the fact that even when they only had one kid, Jesus, they were poor. Remember, they offered the sacrifice of a poor person when Jesus was born. And so James knew what it was like to be poor. He knew what a young widow's life would be like. He experienced it firsthand watching his mother go through that. There's a theme of peacemaking and wisdom. And um, this is also something that James is all about. You think of James, think of how challenging James's task was to lead these truly Jewish brand new communities with no precedent for how to build that around a truly messianic understanding of Jesus. He had to figure that out. He had to talk through it. You know, how much, of the, how much of the Mosaic law should we still keep? And when we keep it, what do we, how do we think about what it's doing? You know, he had to think through all these issues. He had to think about how to welcome non-Jews into the church. If Gentiles coming in, that's what the Jerusalem Council is about in Acts 15. They had to think about like, okay, these kind of previous pagan people are coming in. They're receiving Jesus as the Messiah with us. They're going to fellowship with us. But, you know, look at the stuff they eat and look at what they do. And they're just, you know, how do we incorporate these people? He had to figure that out. And we see in, in, uh, in Acts 15, when we see his judgment about what to do, how wise and how, how peacemaking this guy is. He's got great wisdom for taking this and this, and they don't seem to go together, and figuring out how to make peace between people in a gospel-centered way. There's the theme of prayer. You know, you get the, the, the sense from the book of James that his first reflex when he encountered trial or temptation seemed to be immediately prayer. That's the reflex we want, right? Every time temptation, every time trial comes, we should pray immediately. James seemed to be that kind of person when you see the way he weaves prayer into every single concern. Later, church historians say that, that he had knees like a camel. And actually, strangely, saw a camel this week. I'm a horse vet. I'm not a camel vet. And so don't give out my card for that. But I was driving through Marietta, and sure enough, I was just talking to Tosh about the camel knees. And we looked it up online to see what camel knees look like. And they look really callous. They're really, they have nasty-looking knees. And, uh, and then I think it was the next day, I was driving along, and I texted her. I was like, I just saw a camel. Like, that was weird. But this historian says that James prayed so much, he had knees like a camel. You know, he was a man of prayer. And you can see why when you read through the book of James and you see the totally new life that God is calling to you, you to as a Christian, what do you do? You know you need to pray. <laughs> you read through this and you go like, I need prayer. And that's what we're going to do, guys, after uh, David reads this, is we're going to spend some time in prayer, praying through the concerns that are here. Um, there's a theme of trials and temptation, a lot of themes of trial and temptation in the book of James. I think it's one of the reasons why we love it so much. And James doesn't just give like six steps to living an easy Christian life, right? You guys ever heard a message like that? Three steps to making suffering easy, you know, or something like that. No, he's real with you. He says it's going to be rough. And you're like, I know it'll be rough. No, 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 it's going to be really rough. And you're like, I know. And he says, no, you don't. It's going to be super rough. But God is good. And it's going to be worth it. James 1.12, he says that those who remain steadfast will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And James knew trials and temptations. Think about this guy's life. He loses his dad, his cousin, John the Baptist. He gets killed. Um, there's the whole scandal surrounding Jesus. Must have been stressful, you know, especially because he doesn't believe in all that. Um, seeing Jesus' death, the trials and temptations he had in leading this new community, 
pour onto that the fact that there was a horrible persecution. Uh, we see that in Acts 8 in Jerusalem. And then if, as if Jerusalem didn't get enough problems, in Acts 11 it talks about there being a famine. I mean, he is leading a group of believers through a very difficult time. You can imagine those believers going like, so this is following the Messiah? Things were going better before. You know, what is this? you got persecution. You know, there's a ton of confusion. Um, there's, there's a famine. And then there's the dysfunction of their community. And we get the sense for that when we read James. And we see things like the, the partiality that's occurring and the, the, the mistreatment of, of the poor. And so some of these people that were poor being mistreated by the rich. And you see all these concerns that are happening in this community. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of mess. There's a lot of disaster. I mean, James had to bear all this. Talk about being steadfast under trial. And then we know that in uh, 62 AD that, that James was killed for his faith, too. And we don't know exactly how because different people say different things. It's not, it's not covered in Scripture. But Josephus says he was, they threw rocks at him until he died. So he died through stoning. Clement said they took him on the top of the temple and threw him off. And when he didn't die, they beat him with sticks. I would not be surprised if they did all three. You know, push him off the temple, throw rocks at him, beat him with sticks. I mean, this is a guy that had a brutal, even a brutal death, it sounds like. But the central theme of James, guys, is living faith. James, uh, sometimes people go, well, James is a book about works, you know. And James is a book about works, but James's central concern is actually faith. What does true living, saving faith look like, Right. And this is an important question, guys, because the rest of Scripture tells us that it's faith, true, living, saving faith, that unites us to Christ and gives us all the benefits he's earned for us. So faith doesn't earn salvation. It's not like you believe enough, and then he goes, you know what, I'll take that as works, and that earns your salvation. No. We get saved by faith because faith is what unites us to Jesus and gives us all of the benefits he earned for us. By trusting in Christ, we're connected to his saving benefits of his death and resurrection. He's the one that earned salvation, not us. We haven't earned salvation through works, and we've not earned salvation through faith. Jesus has earned our salvation completely by his works, and we receive that by faith. And so it's an all-important question, guys. Do I have real, living, saving faith or not, right? And so James's concern with works here is a concern really about faith. What works does real, true, saving faith do? You know, what does it look like? What are its vital signs? How can I know that the faith that I say I have is real faith? And that's James's concern because, guys, faith is more than mere belief. I think a lot of times they think, you know, that you're going to be saved by historically believing there was a guy named Jesus and that he died for sins and stuff like that, and somehow that saves you. James is very clear. That kind of faith doesn't save you. That's actually a dead faith. Faith is more than mere belief. It's trust. It's entrusting your life to a person. And, guys, even if you're not a Christian this morning, you actually have faith in certain people. There are certain people that you trust, and you trust them because they've shown themselves to be trustworthy. You have faith in people because they've shown themselves to be faithful. Uh, faith in Jesus is like that. It's not opposed to reason. It's actually entirely reasonable for you to put your faith in the God of the Bible. It's like the most reasonable thing you can do. Why? Because he has shown himself faithful. Like, this is a person who has objectively shown himself faithful 
And so it is completely reasonable that you would put your faith in him. He's shown himself in every way trustworthy, that you should very reasonably trust in him. He's shown himself trustworthy in the lives of our spiritual ancestors. And one fun thing about James is he mentions a lot of them. He mentions people like Elijah and Job and the prophets and Rahab and Abraham. He's shown himself faithful in their lives. God has shown himself faithful in his promises of a Messiah. You guys have read the Old Testament, you see all those promises of Messiah. That God has shown himself faithful by keeping every one of those. And he was so faithful that he was faithful all the way to death on a cross to keep the promises that he's made here in the Old Testament. And he's been faithful. If you know him, he's been faithful to you. You know it experientially. That he has consistently been faithful. That even when you were faithless, he was faithful to you. And he has in so many ways blessed you and loved you along the way. And so faith, guys, is not a blind leap. Sometimes people talk about faith as, as it's a blind leap or it's belief in the absence of knowledge. Or, you know, like Mark Twain says, believing things you know ain't so, right? Faith is not like that. Faith is not a blind leap. Faith is not a belief in the absence of knowledge. Faith in God, it, we have faith in God because he's shown himself to be faithful, it's based on knowledge, guys. Faith is based on true knowledge of God and what he's really like. And faith, guys, affects our lives. It affects our lives. It has to. It, it, that kind of faith, trusting in God for salvation, cannot help but affect our lives too. Um, Christians, guys, are people that have entrusted their everlasting existence to God. Okay? So you, if you're a Christian, you've trusted your everlasting future to God. So that if, for some reason, Jesus didn't really pay for all your sins on the cross, and he wasn't really raised from the dead, you're doomed. You're doomed because you've put all your hope in Jesus. You have no backup plan. This is the whole thing. You put your entire future in this Messiah, Jesus. And you have, you know, you're resting completely in him with no backup plan. Is that you this morning? Is that you this morning? That if, if for some reason, Jesus didn't die for all your sins, and he wasn't raised from the dead, you're doomed. That's what it means to put your full faith in him for your future. And I want to just tell you guys, James wants to say to you this morning that if you've trusted in Jesus for your happiness forever, shouldn't you trust him enough to obey him now? Wouldn't it be really odd for a person to trust in Jesus for a forever existence, whether it'll be you know, everlasting misery or everlasting joy? Trust in him completely for that. But will not trust in him in the moment to do what he says. That doesn't fit, Right? If we trust in him for the future, we have to trust in him for now. That's what keeping all these commands is about. It's about trusting God that he knows best. And faith is about um, trusting in his wisdom and in his goodness. Do you right now, this morning, trust in Jesus to rule your life in the here and now? That's what James wants to ask us. Do we trust him? As we read through, and there's almost as many commands as there are verses in this reading. Uh, do we trust him that everything that he commands is good and right? Guys, the faith to trust God for salvation is the exact same faith that trusts him enough to obey him. There aren't two kinds of faith, in other words. There isn't like saving faith and obeying faith. They're one faith. Exercise two ways. I trust him for the future and I trust him for now. It's one faith in God, right? That's what James wants to tell us is that he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith in Jesus to take care of my forever in living out what he's commanded me right now. And James will show us, guys. James is going to show us where all our holes are, wasn't he? You guys have been believers for a while. You know what you get when you open James. You aren't just like reading through James. You're like, what? I didn't know he was going to do this to me. Like, you know what you're getting. 
You had certain friends like that, right? You sit down with them. You know what you're getting. James is going to expose all those holes in our faith. And it's such a blessing, guys, because these are all holes that the Spirit will fill in us if we repent and turn to Him. And so when the early Jewish church, when they received this wonderful letter from James, and they knew exactly who he was, one of their pastors probably got up, read the whole thing, which is what we're going to do. And, um, and it's going to be a little bit tricky because most of you guys have no attention span. So I want you to focus. And I'm going to give you a few things to focus on. We're going to afterwards pray through the acronym, acronym ACTS. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And we'll have something on the screen here for you to look for as we're reading it. I want you to find under adoration, I want you to, as you're reading, look for things that James says about who God is. Okay, not what he's done, who he is. Okay, look for things about who God is that will make you want to trust his commands more. Or confession, look for areas where you're failing to trust in God's commands. And, and then we got thanksgiving. Where does James say, what does James say about what God has done for us that makes us want to trust his commands? This is more God's doing. And then supplication. Look for areas that you want God to give you living faith to obey his commands. And what you can do is, as you're going through it, if you've got a paper Bible, is you can go through and put a little A, a little C, a little T. And the purpose of this exercise is twofold. It's to keep you focused. But it's also to show you we should be praying scripture. A lot of times our, our prayers can be so hollow and empty and boring, really, because we're not praying Scripture. And so we're going to have an opportunity to pray Scripture as we do this. And, and then what we'll do right after is we'll pray, because I bet that's what those first readers did, right? This letter shows up from James. They read it. They're like, whoa, okay. And they prayed. And that's what we're going to do right afterwards. David's going to come up and read it. After he reads it, he's going to say something like, this is God's word, and your response is, thanks be to God. Let's all practice that right now. He says, this is God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Okay, one more time. This is God's word. Cool. So we're going to do something like that. So be ready for that. And uh, David, you'll come up and, and read. Imagine that you're a Jewish believer in Jesus, living in uh, the middle of the 40s AD. God stirred up this leader of the church you've heard from before to send you this letter, and we're all gathered here to hear it from one of our pastors. Hello, Covenant Grace Menifee podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us. Because of copyright reasons, we are not allowed to include the portion of the sermon where we read through the book of James. We encourage you to pause the podcast right now Go online, find an audio version of the Bible. They can be found at Bible Gateway, Blue Letter Bible, the ESV website. Find one of those that you want to listen to, read along with it, and then join us afterward as we pray through the commands and encouragements that James gives us through the book. Welcome back. We hope that that was an encouraging experience as you read through the entire book of James to take it into context and hear it as the church would have heard it as a letter specifically to them when James wrote it. Now we're going to come back to the sermon and pray together. Let's pray. Father, in the, in the book of James, we see who you are. And the vision of you is breathtaking. You are holy. You cannot be tempted with evil, nor do you tempt anyone. We see in the book of James that you're unchanging. There is no variation or shadow due to change. Your character is always the same. We can always count on you to keep your promises. We can always count on you to be true to your word because you do not change. We see in James that you're wise. 
You're the giver of wisdom. If the wisdom that you give is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruit. Father, we see in the book of James that you're sovereign. Everything that happens only happens because you have willed it. We shouldn't say that we're going to go do this or that. We should say, as you will. You're sovereign. You're sovereign even in bringing us to salvation. It is by your own will that you brought us forth by the word of truth. You're generous. You can see in the book of James your generosity, that every good and perfect gift that we've received has come from your hand. And we see in the book of James that you're the lawgiver. It's you've given good and generous and wise commands, commands that we ought to rejoice in keeping. And we see in the book of James that you're a judge that says you stand at the door, ready to judge every single human being that's ever lived. You're a judge. We see in the book of James that you're gracious and merciful. And that in Jesus, you've made yourself a friend of sinners. And Father, we want to confess that we are those sinners. There's no one that reads the book of James and walks away thinking that they've got this. That they've done it. Lord, we are those sinners. Almighty and merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. James shows us that. We have followed too much in our own devices and desires of our own heart. We have offended your holy laws that are written here in this book for our good. We have left undone the things that we ought to have done, and we have done things we ought not to do. Specifically, as we look in the book of James, we confess that we have not cared for the poor as we ought, but we often share in the sins of the rich, which are mentioned here. We have not been doers of the word. We have often been hearers only. We have shown partiality, preferring those who can bless us and give something back to us instead of blessing those who can give nothing back. Lord, we know for sure that we have not bridled our tongues as we ought. We have been quick to speak and slow to hear. We've been jealous. We've been selfish. We've had selfish ambition. We have not because we ask not. We can own that. We've been arrogant. We've been grumbling. We have judged our brothers and sisters. And we have not been true to our promises. And even if some of those particular ones don't apply to some of us here, you have told us that if we fail at one point of the law, we've broken the whole thing. It is one thing. It's one thing to trust in you. It's one thing to do the things you've commanded. And so we ask for forgiveness for our sins this morning. We ask you to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that in Jesus we have the assurance that if we turn from our sins and trust in you, we will be cleansed completely. We thank you that you have given us more grace in your son Jesus than we could ever have sins in ourselves. We thank you that we right now, in whatever trials we're going through, that you're using those trials to produce steadfastness and that that will have the full effect that will be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. We thank you that you reward steadfastness under trials, the crown of life. We thank you for every good and perfect gift we've received, so many that we've never mentioned that we've received from you that have come down from you, the Father of lights. We thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you for giving us living faith. Faith that doesn't just trust you for everlasting happiness, but faith that trusts you to obey you, 
to believe that what you've commanded is best. Lord, help us to, to, to have more of that kind of faith. We thank you for the ministry of James. I was just thinking in this week about your saint, James, your son, James, our brother, James, and his life, and his life of unbelief, even ridiculing the Messiah, to then coming to a shocking realization that he is indeed the Messiah, and then giving his whole life for that. I just thank you for that life, that life that we can see lived out, a life where he had been given such authority, but he used that authority so well, being a man of peace, being a man of to, to bless others, to lead others. We just thank you for that. We thank you for him writing this letter. How crazy that we'd even have it. Almost 2,000 years later, that we'd have a letter that James wrote to a few scattered churches. How is it that you even had that preserved? We thank you so much. We thank you for saving all sorts of manuscripts throughout the centuries of this letter so that we could have it in our hands, that we could hear your exhortation through your servant, James. We thank you for the way that when we read James and the rest of your word, but when we read James, it searches and knows us. It spots all the areas of hypocrisy. It spots all the areas of falseness. It spots all the little areas where we've tried to evade you and hide from you. And, and Lord, it just searches those out. And we just thank you, Lord, that you are always only search out sin in us and show us sin when you intend to both forgive it and to free us from it. We just thank you for that. We thank you that every time you're convicting us of a sin, it's because you want us to repent, receive forgiveness for that, and receive freedom from that. You do not leave us in our sin. Thank you so much for that, Lord. It's amazing. And Lord, we know that you alone can order all the unruly wills and affections of us, your people. Only you can tame our hearts. Talk about taming the tongue. That comes from the heart. You, only you can tame the hearts, our hearts, and the passions that war within us. Only you can still the restless evil that creeps into our hearts. Only you can remove its deadly poison. Father, we pray that you would grant us, your people, that we could love the things you command and that we could desire what you promise and that we would seek our ultimate joy only in your son, Jesus. Father, please give us the desires of our heart, our desires to possess the things we just read. We want every one of those beautiful commands to be our way of life. Lord, give us the desire of our hearts. Give us a living faith. Give us joy in trials. Give us wisdom. Give us prayer without doubting. Give us steadfastness. Give us care and honor for the poor. Give us speech that blesses and heals our hearers. Give us, Lord, meekness. Give us skill in peacemaking. Father, give us humility. Give us generosity. Give us patience as we wait for your coming. Father, we pray that you would give us all these things. We desire these. And we're so encouraged to ask for these, Lord, because we know that they are your will for us. And that you have all the power to do it. And so as we spend the next several weeks in the book of James, we pray you'd work this into us. Make us hearers and doers of your wonderful word. And we pray, Lord, that we would each help each other along the way. Lord, that we wouldn't do this as an individual pursuit. That we'd come here as individuals, take it in as individuals, apply it as individuals. But that we'd help one another, spur one another along, share with one another the grace that we've received. And we pray, Lord, that you do this all by your spirit and for the glory of the name of Jesus and all God's people say, amen.
Didn't you love just hearing James? You guys have great attention spans. I actually don't know that. I was faced here. But this book is so riveting, isn't it? And it's so well read. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. And in the Lord's Supper, we see a few different truths. One of them is that God is good. James is very clear about that. God is good. James is also very clear that we are sinners, right? Amen? It's true. And that God rightly judges all sin. What's the solution to that, though? James doesn't explicitly tell us, which is interesting. He does tell us the solution is Jesus, but he doesn't explicitly tell us how. But those first century Christians living in the 40s AD, after they had read the word and after they prayed, they would have taken the Lord's Supper and they would have been reminded of the exact solution to their sin, right? That's what this does for us every week is it reminds us of the solution to our sin. The Lord's Supper declares to us who have fallen greatly short of God's word that we are loved by him, we can call him Father, and we can seek him for all the power to do all the things he's commanded. As we take the bread, we declare our trust in Jesus' broken body on that cross, taking away all our sin and making us righteous. And as we take the cup, we remember and we declare the fact that Jesus' blood has washed us clean. And so as we take that also, we are seeking him. And so I would just say, as you take the cup, ask the Lord to give you fresh, living, doing faith. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.